Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning. Good morning, Crossroads. My name is Britt Owsley. I'm on staff here at the church. And as we heard, Charlie is gone this week. He is with family in California. So you have me this morning. We are still in Titus. Uh, We are going to be in chapter 2 today. So if you don't mind, turn in there. Today we're talking about the question, why? When I was a kid, like most kids, I was constantly asking, why? I wanted to know the reason for everything. And if you told me to do something, and you didn't give me a good reason why to do it, I did not want to do it. I was very defiant, especially when I was at school. I was constantly trying to get out of homework, constantly trying to finagle with assignments, trying to get teachers to not make me do things that I thought were dumb, that I didn't see the reason for. In college, I started learning Hebrew, and the why with Hebrew did not come easily. So I have a slide of some Hebrew for us to look at. So when I first started learning this language, it looked like nonsense to me, like it probably does to most of you. If you can tell, most of the letters look like a bunch of weird squiggles and boxes with dots and dashes and random symbols all around. And it's like, what is this? And it's even harder than it looks. Um, So when you're reading Hebrew, (laughs) it's right to left, (laughs) not left to right. So you have to get used to completely switching around like a mirror. Uh, As you're looking at all of these consonants and squiggles and dots and dashes, what they sound like can change based on the things that are around them. So a certain thing that actually looks like a little T can sometimes be an O sound, sometimes be an A sound. It's just always changing. It's complicated. These rules didn't make sense. And I had a lot of difficulty with like, why why would they put the language this way? Why would it be like this? (laughs) But as I was learning, as I was studying, as I devoted myself to it, suddenly it started to mean stuff. Suddenly all those dots and squiggles and lines looked like words. They looked like sounds. They looked like Bible verses. And then a couple years into it, I was reading poetry, and I was was seeing why Solomon actually is as brilliant as we talk about him. Like, the way he put phrases together was beautiful, and it was clever, and it was like, what are you doing, Solomon? How could you do this? Only the Holy Spirit can inspire this level of beauty. But I could only see that because I'd actually spent the time to study this for years in college and then in grad school. And my why is what drove me to do all of that work. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to go on an archaeological dig. I went to Israel, and it was really cool. I got my hat, I got my trowel, I got my boots and my pants and everything, and I was getting ready to dig, and I felt like Indiana Jones. But it did not feel like that when we got into the desert. It wasn't actually a desert. It was more like a big, rocky, dirty place. We were digging with pickaxes, and I felt like a miner. I kind of felt like I was one of the slaves in Egypt. It was just like, what is, what is this experience here? We, some days, it was 110 degrees. It was so hot. I was dirty all the time. We had to walk to and from our site, so we were just walking constantly, digging for eight hours, and then walking back. It was just so tiring. But then finally, we found our why. We found what we were looking for. We dug down, I think it was about seven feet before we found the first rock. I mean, we'd found lots of rocks, but a major rock that was used as part of a wall. And then we found another one next to it, and another one next to it. 
and then we found the ones that were going perpendicular, we'd found the wall of a house. We kept going down a little bit, and we found a bread oven from the time of the Romans. We were in a Roman house. We got to the floor, we examined what was on the floor, and we realized we were in a kitchen. We were in a kitchen from the first century when the Romans were living there. And we even found like what was really unique was an oil lamp. And they look kind of like a teardrop with a little place where you can put the fire. They don't look like the genie in Aladdin. That's like super elaborate. These are just really simple. But because they're made of clay, it's very unique to find one totally intact. They normally crumble, fall apart. So the fact that we had one, this was the only one at the whole site that was found because it's that unique, but it was just, there's our why. We got to go to a Roman kitchen. We got to be in the place that we were digging down looking for. The reason, the why, gave us a motivation to do the work. And there's a lot of work that we have to do as Christians. You know, we've got our jobs, we've got our social obligations, we've got chores to manage around the house, it never seemed to end. But then on top of that, as we've been reading in Titus, there's a lot of stuff we as Christians are supposed to do, we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be like. I just grabbed a sampling of some of the adjectives we've heard so far in this letter. We're to be faithful, we're not to be arrogant, not rebellious, not deceitful, not greedy, we're to be pure, obedient, temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, holy, not slanderous, not given to excessive drinking, loving, self-controlled again, self-controlled again, self-controlled again. Paul really hampers on that one. We as Christians have a lot that we're supposed to do, and we have a lot that we're supposed to be. And we know that we can't do it on our own. Morality for morality's sake doesn't work. If you just give people the Ten Commandments, they're not going to follow them. Paul actually says you're more likely to disobey them if you give the Ten Commandments because suddenly you've told me what to do and now I don't want to do that. What's the reason why? But what we're going to look at today is our reason why. This is the passage where Paul says, okay, people of Crete, Titus, this is your why for following all these ways. The way of Jesus is a lot of work, but here is the reason why. So if you look there, I'm going to be in verses 11 to 15. And I'm going to read for us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So as I'm looking at this, as I've been studying it for weeks, something that stands out to me is how this is actually a lot like a poem. I don't know how obvious it is the different elements if you study it. Verses 11 and 12 and verses 13 and 14 mirror each other. I found 10 different places of parallelism and comparison and when you're looking at it in Greek, actually, there's, there's a, a thing that happens in Greek poetry that this reminded me of, where basically you, you try to make the word appear in the same place, but you make it look different. And basically, Paul's doing that. Paul put in a lot of effort into creating this poem-like structure here. Verses 12, or 11 to 14. <clears throat> and it kind of jumps back and forth. I don't know if you noticed. It's the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, instructing us to do this while we wait for stuff, but Jesus did this, and he's done it so that we can be, live like this. And it's like he's jumping back and forth. So we're not going to go strictly in order. I'm going to 
follow it in a little bit more of a logical sequence. So first, we are going to look at verse 11. We're going to look where Paul looks back. This is where he starts. This is where he starts his why. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what is he talking about? God has been gracious for ages. We have the whole Old Testament recording all of this. There were times with Moses, times with Joshua, David, Ezra, endless stories where God was gracious to his people. His kindness broke into human experience and said, I love you, here I am to help. But the most perfect example of grace is the sacrifice of Christ. So when he's talking about this grace of God appearing, the grace there is Jesus. This is a, a metonymy, a metaphor. Jesus is the grace that has entered into human history and said, I'm going to bring salvation for all people. In verse 14, it says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. What did Jesus do that was so gracious? He sacrificed his life. What can be more gracious? What can be more generous and kind, a better gift than sacrificing his life for us? But what did sacrificing his life do? It redeemed us from all lawlessness. That word redeem, it means to purchase. It means that he said, my life is going to go in place of theirs, even though they deserve to die, even though they were not good enough, they couldn't do the work on their own. I'm going to die in their place. And so he took that. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he was stronger than sin. He was stronger than death. That's the grace that Paul is talking about. But it's not just the sacrifice of Christ. It's all of who he is. He is the grace. So he was born for us. He lived a perfect life, shedding us an example. He taught us that we can still read about in all of the Gospels. We still learn and benefit from everything that he taught. Then he died and he rose again to purchase us. And it says to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession. He bought us to be his own. How, what good news is that? We get to belong to him. Even though we can't do the work ourselves, he did the work for us. He bought us, and then what is he going to do? He's going to train us. We're going to get back to that in a second. As we look back to the ancient grace, we should get our why. We should get our reason to do like what Jesus did. If he sacrificed of himself, our response should be gratitude. Our response should say, I want to do what Jesus did because of what he did for me. This is what good movements do. If you give someone a good why, they're motivated to move forward. Honestly, as I was studying this passage, what kept coming to mind was a famous speech in our nation's history. It was Abraham Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg. It starts really famously, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Lincoln looked back. He was looking to the past for his why. But then he also looked forward. It says, we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. He looked forward. He said that there's going to be a day when this ideal of all men created equal will actually be accomplished. So what do you do now? You fight harder. This was happening right in the middle of the Civil War. This is in 19, 
I'm sorry, 1863. But in 1963, 100 years later, Martin Luther King looked back to this speech, and he said something very similar. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Dr. King looked back to Lincoln, just as Lincoln looked back to the Founding Fathers, because the past and the great sacrifices of the past and the great wisdom of the past is our motivation to do now what we're supposed to do. But not only that, just as Lincoln looked forward to the day that that dream could be accomplished, Dr. King famously said, I have a dream. He spoke of his children, that they could live in harmony with white children, that black, white, and all races, that there would be no distinction of judgment based on color of skin. He said, they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That vision of equality is something that Dr. King was still fighting for, and he was still looking to. Not only is the past our reason for our why, but so is the future. And that's what Paul's going to do. So we're going to go to verse 13. In verse 13, it says, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He looks ahead to this glory because of what it teaches us. It teaches us to wait for Christ's return. Are we anticipating it? Are we looking for him to come, or are we only looking back? Are we looking back? You know, Jesus died for us, and now we got to live. But what for? As we go forward, we're looking for the blessed hope. Uh, the word blessed there could also be thought of as happy. If, if, if you looking forward to the return of Christ does not motivate happiness, joy, hope, then you're reading it wrong. You're, 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 you need to learn what the Bible actually says. So Jesus himself spoke of himself returning in glory. He said in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What is this meaning of the glory? It's basically that he's going to come in all the pomp, all the circumstance, all that he deserves. We will see him as he truly is. He will be uh, magnified, just as we saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, just as John saw at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We'll see him emitting light. He, his face will be like the sun. He will be like burning bronze. We will see him in his divinity and humanity in this perfect union, glorified forever. And we will get to experience the beauty of that. And that should motivate us. That should get us excited. Another thing that happens when Jesus comes back that should get us excited is that he returns with all the saints, a reunion of everyone that has ever loved Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, there's a reference to the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. The saints will be raised. Anyone that you know that's ever loved Jesus that has passed away will come back, as well as David and Paul and Peter and St. Francis of Assisi and every other Christian you can think of, we get to come back together. We get to spend time together with Christ. The community of faith will finally be united. That should motivate our joy. That should motivate hope. Last thing that I'm putting here, at least, that Jesus is going to do when he comes back, he's going to do a lot, but he's going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new. It's like Isaiah 61 says that he's going to preach good news to the poor. He started that when he came the first time. But the work isn't finished. He still has a lot of work to do, and he's going to do it, and we can trust that he's going to do it. He's going to heal wounds. He's going to right wrongs. He's going to finally 
put every lie to silence, and he's going to establish the truth for everyone. We sang a song today called When the Dawn Arrives, and I think the lyrics perfectly encapsulate what I'm talking about here. That he will set every prisoner free. All injustice and hate will cede. Every tear wiped away for good as the sad and the evil unravel beneath his return. He's coming back for us. That should make you smile. That should make you think of all of the good that he's going to do when he returns. Now, there's a lot of talk about judgment. And I just want to talk a moment here about when Jesus returns, when he judges, what he's going to be doing is what I've been saying, setting things right. So if someone was lying, he's going to tell the truth. If someone was punished unjustly, he's going to vindicate them. If you've ever been accused of something that was false, it's going to be known that you were in the right. And the goodness that he's going to bring about is going to overwhelm evil and death. The judgment of what is wrong is the right thing to do. But sometimes it can be kind of scary. Sometimes it's like, what, you know, is, is he going to make the right decision? Is judgment going to be too harsh? And it's like, if you love Jesus, if you really receive the grace of the sacrifice that he gave you on the cross, will you trust him that when he gets back, he's going to make the right decision? That he really will judge rightly? that it will not be unfair. Everyone who has asked for his grace will receive it. And everyone who doesn't want it doesn't get to have it, doesn't need to have it. They asked. He said, they said no. Uh, he's not going to give it to them. He's going to send them away. And there's not really anywhere else to go other than the universe. So there's a lot of metaphors for what that looks like, the outer darkness, the hell, the lake of fire. But Jesus is good, and he's not going to do that unfairly. So give him your trust. <laughs> This also raises a um, point of the book of Revelation, which is similar to this topic of, of judgment. A lot of people respond to the book of Revelation as if it's scary, or it's confusing, or it's both. And I just want to say a couple things about that. Um, one, it is very confusing, but it should not be scary for the same reasons that I was just saying. If you really believe that Jesus is good, if you believe that you can trust him for your salvation, you can trust that Everything else that's going on, that's not scary for you. That's not scary for those that trust in him. But it should motivate us to try to speak about who Jesus is to people. Now, there's a bunch of visions, there's a bunch of symbols, there's a bunch of really confusing stuff. But I'm just going to say that is symbolic of how powerful and good King Jesus is. So you can just put that away until it's time to actually study it in depth. It should be super exciting to us. It should be something that motivates our hope because if you love King Jesus, you're going to be amazed and hopeful, not fearful of his return. Specifically about the book of Revelation, I have a piece of advice. If you're studying it, the majority of your time should be spent on the first five chapters. Maybe some on the last four chapters, but that stuff in the middle, you really need to know the Old Testament, you really need to know the New Testament, and you need to be able to draw a bunch of connections all over the place, because that's what John's doing. He's constantly referencing other places in the Bible. And if you're not familiar with those, it can get confusing, it can get muddled up, and so at the same time, there's not a lot of application to those chapters. The application primarily comes from the first five. So if you're going to spend time alone on it, spend it in the first five chapters. All right, so as we're waiting for this blessed hope this wonderful return of King Jesus that should get us excited and hopeful. 
We also have this really interesting phrase, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the most explicit statement of Jesus' divinity in the whole Bible. There's places where he says things like, I am. And anybody who knows their Hebrew Bible should know, oh, Jesus is claiming to be divine right there. But this is the one place where it's unmistakably calling Jesus God. And if you read the commentaries, if you try to read old books, you will not believe how many people bend over backwards to try to make this not say what it's saying. They have arguments about the grammar. They try to you know, put all kinds of things in there, but it doesn't work in English or in Greek. It clearly says, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. This is really interesting language. So if you look at the words appeared, God, Savior, and great, these four words, when they're used together, are often used specifically to talk about one God as being greater than others, or to try to assert that a human king is God. So this is used often of Zeus. This is used often of Artemis. Those are the two strongest gods, basically, when you think about the Greco-Roman world. Jupiter or Zeus, Artemis or Diana, sometimes Mars or Ares. But these words are asserting that they're more powerful than all the others. At the same time, it's used of humans that are claiming this. So Alexander the Great claimed this of himself. Um, a bunch of the Greek kings in Egypt, they were called the Ptolemies. They were constantly using this about themselves because in Egypt, you know, as they were ruling as the oppressive power, they constantly had to assert, you know, we're gods. Remember, we're gods. Don't rebel. The Roman emperors were also claiming this of themselves. This language is just stock language for human king claiming divinity. And then Paul uses it rightly of King Jesus. He's the only person for whom this is actually accurate. He actually is the only person that is God come down, become human. And why is that good news? Why is the appearing of this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, good news? Because he actually is a Savior. He actually is a God. He has the power to help us. As I've been saying over and over again, we were not good enough to earn our salvation. Jesus had to come and sacrifice himself for us. But the grace of God that appeared has also empowered us because he is a God. He is a Savior. Our Savior and God, Jesus Christ, can strengthen us to actually do the work that we're supposed to do. The why of our work is also the what of our work. It's the how of our work. Go back to verse 14. It says, He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession. He purchased us specially to be his. And in that purchasing, it says he cleanses us. This word is related to sanctification. Charlie's talked about that before. We've mentioned it a couple times in this sermon series. That this process of sanctification is once we have been saved, God is transforming us, enabling us more and more to obey him, enabling us more and more to be like Jesus. We are washed. That washes away that which is not of God, and we are continually more and more renewed. Though the process is really slow, it's sure and certain. And we know that it's going to be brought to a completion when Jesus comes back. So now what do we do? We look back to the ancient grace. We look forward to the future glory. And so in the present, we get to work. This is normal. This is how we normally go about what we're doing. We think about our past experiences. We 
expect something in the future and we act in accordance. Paul says this in verse 12. What is grace doing? It is training us or instructing us or teaching us. That word can mean a number of different things, all in that kind of vein. But it teaches us to deny godlessness and worldly desires. Suddenly now, because of grace, we have the power to say no. We can turn away from our sin. And it says that we are empowered and trained and taught by grace to live in the present age in a threefold way. Self-controlled, righteousness, righteous, and godly. So grace is training us to do basically a summary of everything we've been told to do. Everything could be summarized with these three words. Self-control is how you act towards yourself. This is, this is personal holiness. Are you being honest? Are you uh, trusting the Lord? Is your thought life oriented towards the grace and hope of Christ or towards despair, towards anger, towards bitterness? This is all the internal. In, your, in how you act to yourself, are you practicing personal holiness? Righteousness, living in a righteous way, is how you act towards others. Are you living like Jesus? Are you enacting justice? Are you living with love? Are you being kind to other people? Are you living with integrity? And then godlessness, godliness, I'm sorry, is how we act towards God. Are you acting with gratitude and hope, praise and obedience? The last thing is that we need to live with zeal. Grace teaches us to live with zeal. Verse 14, at the end of it, it says that we're eager to do good works. We're not begrudging. We're not slugging on. Our why and our how become the ability to do the what, our ability to do the work. The depth of our why comes from looking back and looking ahead. We have the potential to overemphasize one or the other. There are people that are spending all their time thinking about the future, and they don't actually do anything now. There are people who spend so much time thinking about now, they don't remember the past. They don't remember what Christ did for them. They can feel unworthy. They can feel unable. But as we look to ancient grace and future glory, we give us, we get from Jesus the why behind our work. So what do we do about it? So we are in verse 15. We get a, a, a command specifically to Titus. So Titus is a leader of the church. So we can't apply this exactly the same Titus did. So when Paul said, proclaim these things, he's talking to a preacher who's going to be teaching in the churches. When he says, encourage and rebuke with all authority, he's speaking to someone who has the authority to do that. And let no one disregard you is saying that no one should disrespect him. But we can apply this to ourselves. We're not church leaders necessarily the way that he is. So how do we apply this? We, we should talk about it. We should proclaim it. In our conversations, in our private thoughts, we should constantly be talking about the grace of Jesus, what he did for us. We should constantly be talking about the fact that he's coming back. You know, if, if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we can, with hope, remember, it'll veer back up again. Because one day Jesus will return to restore all things and make all things new. There is no reason to be hopeless when we know that Jesus is returning. So we should be talking about this constantly with one another. And in our talking about it, we're constantly strengthening one another's faith, encouraging one another. And from that, we get the power to actually do what we're supposed to do. The second thing where it says to encourage and rebuke with all authority, the person you have authority over here is yourself. 
So the way I think we could apply this is that we encourage and rebuke ourselves. When you're thinking thoughts of despair, encourage yourself with the hope of the return of Jesus. When you're thinking that you're not worthy enough or when you're thinking you can do it in your own effort, when you can obey God on your own, remember, rebuke that thought. No, it's the grace of Jesus that made a way and it is only through the grace of Jesus that I'll continue. When it says, no one let, let no one disregard you, I think this speaks of our confidence. We can be confident in Jesus. We can be confident in what he did for us. We can be confident in what he's going to do when he returns. So hold these things confidently. You're not defined by your past. You're defined by what Jesus did. So as we continue this series in Titus, we're going to be getting more of these what's, more of the things to do. Trust in Jesus. Look back to ancient grace. Look ahead to future glory. And then get to work. But one of the main ways that we can do that, one of the main things Jesus told us to do, is to practice communion. Paul actually tells us, when we practice communion, when we take of the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he, even in talking about communion, links the past sacrifice to the future return. So if you'll take your cup with me. Jesus said that this bread was his body. It was broken for us. It represents the sacrifice that he made on the cross, and it represents his power now to graciously forgive us and enable us. Let's take it together. When Jesus took the cup, he said that this was the new covenant in his blood. Covenants are contracts, they're promises. This is Jesus' promise to always be with us until he returns. Let's take the cup together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your King Jesus. You gave us your son. You anointed him as Christ. You set him as an example. And then you let him die in our place. You forgive us because of him. You empower us through him. Through your Holy Spirit, we're able to see the example of King Jesus and live today. I pray, Lord, as we take these elements, we are sanctified anew today become holier, to become more hopeful, become more grateful, and be able to do the work that we're supposed to do. In the name of Christ, I pray.